0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to book of Jeremiah, chapter 10. We're looking at verses 1 through 16. Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll begin our reading in verse 1. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses, Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance." The Lord of hosts is his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the picture that this passage gives us, both of the reality of idols and the reality of who you are, our true and living God. And we pray, Father, that you would bless our time and your word, teach us through it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mocking the pagan idols of the nations around Israel has a long tradition in the Old Testament. We think of uh, back in the days of Elijah, when uh, Elijah had the showdown with the prophets of Baal, with the two altars both drenched with water. Uh, the, the one drinks with water as Elijah calls on the, the, the Lord to send down fire from heaven and display himself to be the one true God. And you have, uh, as the prophets of Baal for hours at an end call on Baal to send down fire, uh, Elijah taunts them, you know, maybe, maybe he's busy, maybe he's gone on a trip, you know, maybe he's distracted, maybe he's asleep, who knows, he's not paying attention. And then with one simple prayer, the Lord answers Elijah's prayer and shows himself to be the true God. Isaiah, uh, ridiculing the idols of his day in several passages. One notable one is Isaiah 44, where Isaiah points out the utter foolishness of growing a tree and then cutting it down. With half of it, he burns it in the fire, he uses it to roast and eat meat. He warms himself and says, I'm warm, I've seen the fire, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down to worship. He prays to it, says, deliver me, for you are my god. Half of it he used for fire to cook his food, and the other half he sets up and worships. Habakkuk also takes his shot, as did many of the Old Testament prophets, ridiculing the foolishness of pagan idolatry. Well, so what? We read that, uh, and yet for us, that seems like something very distant, far removed, even quaint. No one does that anymore, at least not around here. Although as multicultural as the area has become, I wouldn't be so sure. But does this have anything to say to us, a passage like this that speaks to idolatry? Well, sure it does. Because like the Canaanites, like, like uh, backslidden Israel and Judah of old, we too are prone to idolatry. We too are prone to worship images of our own making. Calvin put it this way, he said, let us learn how greatly our nature inclines toward idolatry. Rather than by charging the Jews with being guilty of the common failing, we, under vain enticements to sin, sleep the sleep of death. In other words, before we look down on them, let's make sure that we're not just unaware of the depth of our own idolatry. Now, we're going to talk about our idols in just a little bit. But first, let's see what Jeremiah has to say about Allah, about their idolatry. And he begins in verse 1 with this, I hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord, verse 2, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, but the customs of the people are vanity. Now, it was tempting. Israel had always struggled with the desire to be like the nations around them. Remember, early on, we want a king like these other nations around us have. There was a little bit of an element of peer pressure here. You know, the other nations have these gods. I mean, look at Babylon. Great power. Everything's up to date in Babylon, and they have all this idolatry. It seems to be working for them. There was an element of peer pressure. Learn not the way of the nations, those who are around you. And he says, nor be dismayed at the signs in the heavens, simply because the nations around you were dismayed. Now, they were uh very impressed with signs, with uh phenomena in the phenomena in the heavens, uh the stars, the moon, the sun, especially anything out of the ordinary comets, um, those kinds of things. They would pay attention to that and would see signs in that, and would be very uh impressed by what they saw, what they read in the heavens. But the Lord says, Don't be dismayed, don't literally don't be in awe of those things, like the nations around you. Uh, because after all, Israel knew the God who made those heavenly bodies, the one who ruled over them. They were impressed by the tangible nature of idolatry, and that's something that comes up uh, frequently—not just in Jeremiah, but in Isaiah, in Habakkuk, in other places where they where they talk about these gods. They will go to great lengths to make them impressive. They're, they're gold. Uh, they have fine. Uh, fine fabric uh, involved with them. They make them as impressive as they can, and it's something tangible, something you can touch, something you can see, where Israel uh, was not to make an image of her God. Uh, God came and spoke to them. They heard a word. They did not see an image, and uh, yet there was something that just wanted that tangible, something you could touch and see and look at. But the assessment is given in the first part of verse 3. The customs of the peoples are vanity. Remember Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. The word means a vapor, a mist, something fleeting, passing away, lacking substance. Well, that's the same word that's used here. The customs of the people are just a vapor. It's a mist. It's insubstantial. There's nothing to it. So he starts out with this general warning. And like other prophets, he takes this shot here at mocking the idols of the people. And he wants the people to see the idols that seem so impressive, the idols of the nations around them, as they really are. What's really going on here? And how do they compare with the God of Israel? He wants them to see what they are giving up, what they lose to follow these nothing idols, to follow this vanity. And so in a a passage that tends to go back and forth from idols to the Lord, idols to the Lord, idols to the Lord, Jeremiah shows three contrasts between the pagan idols and The God of the covenant, Israel's God. And what he teaches through those contrasts, what he teaches them, what he teaches us, is that our idols always fall short of the one true God. They always fall short of the one true God. Well, let's look at these contrasts. First of all, Jeremiah wants to tell them, he wants to tell us, that none of these idols can compare to God in glory. No idol can compare to God in glory. Look at verse 3. Again, he starts out, as Isaiah does and others do, with with how idols arrive, how these images develop. A tree from the forest is cut down. They start there. As Isaiah says, he goes and plants a tree. Because the point is, it's a tree. It just grows there. In fact, in the case with Isaiah, you planted it. Where this idol comes from is a tree that you planted that grows up. A tree from the forest is cut down. Worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. Again, make it impressive. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it cannot move. Remember First Samuel when Israel and the Philistines were at war and the, the Israelites take the Ark of the Covenant into battle, convinced that by doing so they'll win. Well, the Philistines really hunker down, try hard, and win win the battle. And they capture the Ark of the Covenant. What a disgrace to Israel. What an embarrassment. What a calamity. Well, the Philistines see this as a victory of their god, Dagon, over Yahweh, the god of Israel. And they take the spoils of war, the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it at the feet of Dagon. An offering giving tribute to Dagon, who has conquered Yahweh, the God of Israel, in this box that represents him. And they go in the next day, and what do they discover? But that the God Dagon has fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, that will never do. So they settle Dagon back up, and they come in the next day, and they find that Dagon has fallen down once again before the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Maybe they learn, that's why Jeremiah points here, they fasten it with hammer and nails so it won't fall over, or so it won't fall off the shelf. Uh, Phil Reichen in his uh, commentary on Jeremiah makes this comment, there's something embarrassing about a wobbly God, something unseemly about a deity who falls off the shelf and lands on his face, and it's true. So they, they, they plate it with silver and gold, they, they fasten it with hammer and nails, they nail it down so it doesn't fall over. Um, verse 5, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. You know? They only had a brain. Uh, but they don't. They're, they're just images. They're, they're nothing. They can't speak. They have to be carried, but they can't walk. What's the assessment? Don't be afraid of them. They can't do evil. They can't do anything to you. You don't need to feel threatened by these pagan deities because they're nothing. They're like scarecrows out in the field. It be silly to be afraid of it. They can't do you harm, nor can they do you any good. Neither is it in them to do good. Well, those are the idols who are no better than a scarecrow in a cucumber field. A contrast sets in then in verse 6 with the Lord. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Unlike the scarecrow idols of the nations, don't be afraid of them. They can't do evil. He says of the Lord, Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. Among all the wise ones of the nations, all their kingdoms, there is none like you. The glory of the Lord, the wisdom of the Lord, the fearsomeness of the Lord. No God can compare to our God in glory, in sheer magnificence. And think of the, the ways that God reveals himself in Scripture, the various names, times, for example, when he has appeared to Isaiah in that glorious vision in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is, is simply overwhelmed by the presence of, of the Holy One of Israel. So Jeremiah is basically saying, you know, think of who God is. Think of who these idols are. See majestic glory on the one hand. See scarecrows in the cucumber field on the other hand. Other, other hand you get a sense of the uh, contrast that's there. But he makes another contrast. No idol can compare to our God in power. There's nothing glorious about a scarecrow. Especially one out of the cucumber field. Or one anywhere. And yet God is glorious. He is wise. He is to be feared. He is magnificent. But he goes on in verses 8 through 13. No idol can compare to our God in power. Look at verse 8. Again, we start with the idol. They are both stupid and foolish, those who follow them. The instruction of idols is but wood. Now, that's, the Hebrew there is a little bit difficult, a couple of ways you could render that, but that's basically it. Uh, their instruction is but wood, or it could be something like, what instruction comes from wood? Uh, but remember, this is a tree we're talking about. That's how it started out, was a tree. Uh, the instruction of idols is but wood. That's, what do you get from wood? Where do you get wood? Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen, of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. Yes, in a certain sense, as the work of men's hands, they are impressive. But remember, they are the work of men's hands. Yes, they're clad in gold. Yes, they're clad in fine clothing. But And yes, they're the work of skilled men who've put their efforts and their energies and their abilities into crafting these impressive Figures. But, again the contrast. Verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Again, an impressive image versus the true God. Living, everlasting. The earth shakes with His wrath. Nations cannot endure his indignation. You know, despite all of its finery, the idol still remains just an idol, just a piece of wood. Reminds me of Proverbs 11.22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Um, You know, you, you can't make something other than what it is, no matter how you dress it up. Well, that's what he says about the idols. They are impressive, yes, but ultimately they're wood and their instruction is wood, but again, the contrast, the power of God, makes the Earth shake. Nations can't endure his indignation. He goes on about God's power. The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the Earth from under the heavens, because they didn't make anything. By contrast, verse 12, it is He, the Lord, who made the Earth by His power, established the world by his wisdom, and his understanding, by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, a tumult of waters in the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. Probably mist there, right? You could think of it as clouds. He makes the clouds come up from the horizon. Clouds, you know, move across the sky, uh, describing a storm. He's the God who makes storms, the rain, the thunder, lightning. For the rain, he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. You see the contrast. These impotent idols on the one hand versus all-powerful God on the other. The idols who are made by men versus the God who made men. The idols whose wisdom is but wood versus the God who is the Lord of the weather, who is the, the Lord over heaven and earth, a God who can shake the earth with his voice. Again, this contrast in terms of power. So no idol can compare with God in glory. No idol can compare with God in power. They are the works of men's hands. Men are the works of God's hands. The earth is the work of his hands and he rules over. But there's a third contrast here that Jeremiah uh, brings out. And that is no idol can compare with our God in salvation. In salvation. Uh, Look at uh, verse 14. Again, every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. Why? For his images are false. and There's no breath in them. They're worthless. A work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. So what's he saying? These things are a delusion. They're nothing. And yet, this is what people are looking to To save them, to help them, to protect them, to guard them, to empower them. They're nothing. They're scarecrows in a cucumber field. They're a vapor. They are a delusion. But again, the contrast. Verse 16. Not like these is he who made the portion, who is the portion of Jacob. For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Idols are a delusion, but the Lord is their covenant God. Not like these. He's the portion of Jacob. He is, he is Jacob's, he's Israel's inheritance. He belongs to them. Because of the covenant he made with them. He's the one who formed all things. Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. He belongs to them as their portion. They belong to him as his inheritance. Because so long ago the Lord entered into covenant with them that he would be their God. They had a right to ownership of him as their God. And they would be his people. He was the one who redeemed them out of Israel. They belonged to him. And he holds them as his treasured possession. The Lord of hosts is his name. Not the Lord of the hosts of the stars of heaven, although he is that, but the, the hosts of the armies of heaven, the hosts of the, the warriors, the angels. He is their leader. And, and in a way a reference to his might, he is the one who leads the mighty hosts of heaven. He is the one who is even more powerful than the hosts of heaven, the Lord of hosts is his name. And by the way, there's a change there. You'll notice the small caps, the Lord of hosts. There's a change there to his covenant name, Yahweh, not Adonai, Lord or master, but the Lord, the, the Yahweh of hosts, the name he gave to Moses, is his name. The idols are a delusion. They're nothing. They can do nothing. They've never done anything. There's nothing to them. On the other hand, Israel has her covenant God. The one who belongs to them, the one to whom they belong, the one who formed all things, not who was formed by the hands of Israel, but who himself formed all things. Do you sense Jeremiah's burden here? He's saying, look, people, look at what you were trading away. Look at what you were trading the Lord away for. Nothing. In other words, it's a bad deal. You're losing here. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Look what you have. Look what you stand to lose. No idol can compare to our God in glory. No idol can compare to our God in power. No idol can compare to our God in terms of salvation and in terms of the relationship that we can have with him. So now let's talk about our idols. Well, no, we don't bow down to man-made images. Or do we? Do we worship an image, if only one that we make in our minds? Because after all, even for the Canaanites, the image was only an image that represented something else in their minds. Do we worship an image, if only in our minds? A worship of uh, an image of success, uh, an image of security, an image of romance, or an image of happiness? And of course, you know that we need to be careful not to define idolatry uh, as merely physically bowing down before an image. It's, it's reductionistic. Even the Canaanites' view of idolatry or view of their worship of that idol was bigger than that. The third century African theologian Origen uh, defined idolatry this way. He said the idol is what each one honors before all else what before all things he admires what before all for all things he lives this for him is god could be anything food popularity sex success leisure power wealth by origin's definition i think is a good one it's is what you are living for what motivates what drives you what ultimately is your goal David Wells, a uh, contemporary theologian at Gordon Conwell Seminary, defines idolatry this way It's trusting some substitute for God to serve some uniquely divine function. These substitutes need not be supernatural. Money, power, expertise, the location of the planets on the astrological charts, reference, of course, the horoscope, and belief in progress are among the most popular idols of our time. You know, in in thinking about idolatry, examining my own heart, um, I think a helpful question to ask in in identifying the idols of our hearts, and we all have them, they're all in all our hearts, but a helpful way to identify them is this, what do I turn to to deal with life? What do you turn to to deal with life? Or to to put it another way, what is your Refuge. The Bible says, God is my refuge and strength. The Lord is my refuge and strength. Ever-present help in trouble. The Bible says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 18. An idol is whatever replaces God there. Blank is my refuge. Blank is a strong tower for me. I run to it and I feel Safe. It's what we turn to other than God when we're stressed out, when we feel defeated, when we feel afraid or nervous or anxious, when we're upset, when we're bored, when we feel undone, when we feel beaten, when we feel uncertain. What do you turn to? What you, for some people, it's food. You know, you get stressed out, start eating. Uh, for others, it can be something far more. Uh, harmful, or at least immediately harmful. It can be all kinds of things. Dick Kais, with, uh, with, um, with, um Labrie, identifies some idols. He says an idol can be a can be physical property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. You see, idols can be, in and of themselves, very benign things. What is your refuge? What do you turn to to deal with life? This week, think about that question. You may not be able to come up with anything. Maybe you can right now. But think about it this week. What is it that you turn to? What is it for you is that escape? Well, for all of us, our first recourse should be to the Lord, that we go to him. Because like the Bible says, the Lord is my refuge and strength. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those other things ultimately will not help you, will not save you. You may feel better for a time, but in fact, very often, they themselves and that idolatry of them becomes destructive in one way or another. Only the Lord is a safe refuge. Only the name of the Lord is a safe, strong tower. Well, how all those things pale into comparison with the one true and living God. He is no scarecrow. He is no nailed down shelf God. He is no mirage. He is no delusion that offers us life and then fades away as soon as we get close to him. He and he alone satisfies our hearts. Or as Jeremiah put it in verse 16, he is our portion. We are his people. The Lord of hosts is his name. Let's pray. Father, you you are the Lord of hosts, and we pray that you would be the Lord of hosts for us. Father, our hearts are prone to look to all kinds of things rather than you. And yet, Lord, you alone are the safe refuge. You are the lone of the safe, strong tower. Father, teach us, train us, in the face of years of idolatrous habit, to run to you, to turn to you in prayer, to turn to your word in the ups and downs of life. Father, we consider ourselves more sophisticated than to kneel before A gold-clad figure of wood. And yet, Lord, how many of those populate our minds and our hearts? Father, we confess our idolatry. Forgive us when we have run to and turned to and looked to anything but you alone. Our sovereign God, our glorious Lord, our creator, the Lord of hosts. In you, O Lord, and in you alone, we trust. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.